Right, good morning. Get the notes out. Check the time. Oh dear. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's going to be a long one today. <laughs> Again, sorry, but we're in Matthew and we just can't, can we? There's so much there. It's We probably should have split a bit more, but never mind. Anyway, so I'm going to start with these words this morning. Stop being so judgy. (laughs) That's what my kids sometimes say to me. I know you're horrified, aren't you? Can you believe it? But I'm really pleased that they do. They pick me up on it. Mum, stop it. You know, we all struggle in this area. We want to decide, don't we, what's right and wrong. And if we were them, what we would do. Now, of course, none of you need to trouble yourselves with that because you're all fine. (laughs) But it is something that we're quite fascinated by. Think about what goes on on social media, the fights that happen, the interest in reality TV as we discuss and dissect every contestant. Think about early years at school where we decide who is in and who is out in our groups and why we just love passing a judgment or a verdict on people whether that's crime or ranting as you drive along to a phone-in discussion we like blaming people we like to decide who is at fault who is responsible in politics in business in families And we can say, what is wrong with people? Or how can anyone, as we walk down the street and we see litter or someone cuts in front of us as we're driving, forgetting, of course, that sometimes when we're half asleep and exhausted and we're coming back from work and we've forgotten where we're going and suddenly we're in the wrong lane. Being judgy is certainly negative. It is. And it's the part of the Bible that people like to choose to quote as well. Do not judge, they say. But judgment isn't all bad, is it? It's important. If a crime is committed, then we want justice. And that can only happen if the perpetrator is found and judged that they have done something wrong. That is important. But the quote from the Bible is actually about hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. And the judge is not humans, but can only be the creator. He is the one that's qualified and has the authority and power to judge. Now, religious leaders are notoriously guilty of this. They get judged a lot for being hypocrites and judgmental. And it's interesting as we read this passage today that in Jesus' times, things were no different. We saw last week that Matthew recorded Jesus' run-in with the judgy types or the judgmentals. They are the Pharisees. Here we are. Now, the Pharisees, I mean, separated one. They were like a brotherhood, a community that existed along other, other community, like Sadducees, which you might have heard of as well. 
Now, not all Pharisees were the kind of religious leaders or teachers of the law. They weren't all academics. Some of the Pharisees were normal people. But what held them together was a commitment to a pious life. They chose to live by a higher level of holiness that perhaps was only expected of, of the priests. And the heart of their message was that if Israel raised its bar, became more holy, more committed, more obedience to God's commands, then the covenantal blessings found in places like Deuteronomy would be theirs once more. And they expected God's king to be fully on board with this. It was all about becoming holier and holier and holier, just like them, and doing what they did. And when Jesus butts head with, heads with them last week and this week, it's about regulations. The way that they did judge it, the right way to live. And last week, they criticized uh, Jesus's stuff that he was doing on the sabbath and in previously it's been about purity laws about how you stay clean and unclean like when they criticize him for eating with tax collectors and sinners and jesus drew their attention last week to hosea pop it up for you and in hosea it talks about mercy being the most important thing not following the legas, legas, I can't say the word anyway the legalistic that's the one rules of kind of like sacrifice and offering and making sure you tithe properly and all that but rather they are to reflect the character of God and primarily his mercy because God is mercy and he wants his people to be like him When we're created in creation, we're created to be in his image, to bear his image, to be his character. And mercy is part of that character. Someone's ringing. (laughs) Now, we see right at the beginning when God calls them out of Egypt, he shows the people mercy. It's really clear in Deuteronomy that he doesn't rescue them because they are more righteous or better or more perfect or more nice than anyone else. He, he rescues them because his character is mercy. And then he starts a covenant with them, a covenantal relationship based on love. But instead of taking this covenant as a blessing... They make it into more of a heavy yoke, we talked about the other week. So they are now more like slaves than ever before. And Jesus points this out here in verse 7 when he says to them, If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he demonstrates that mercy in verse 13 in healing. And their response to his demonstration of mercy is they want to kill him. So let's look this week at what happens next. With the question still in our mind, who is Jesus? 
What has he come? What has he come to do? And how do we enter his kingdom? So let's have another look, because we've only read it once, at verse 15 to 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he has brought justice through to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. Now we know Matthew loves to use Isaiah. He wants to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So he uses proof text to say, look, it says here, it says here, it says here. It's exactly what um, in the Acts we get people who get into the chariot with the... um, that guy, and then they t- they start in the beginning. They explain th- they explain through the test through the Hebrew scriptures why Jesus is the Messiah, and Matthew loves to do that. Here he's using Isaiah forty two. I'll bring it up for you. And in Isaiah forty two, it's one of what's called the servant songs. It's about the Messiah to come, and Matthew's keen to say the reason that Jesus is very quiet. Shh, don't tell him. There's a reason he's doing that. The reason that he's going very quietly and not kind of getting his sword and building an army is because of this passage. It says that the servant of the Lord is going to be one that God delights in and puts his spirit on. And we saw that at the baptism when the dove descends. We see it again at the transfiguration when God says, this is my servant whom I love. And he's gentle. Jesus said that about himself the other week, didn't he? I'm gentle and lowly of spirit. And here it reminds us he will not quarrel. He's not going to get into an argument on Twitter. (laughs) He will not cry out. You won't even hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. He's 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 not violent. In fact, not even if you're almost broken, he won't even give you a little push. He's going to be gentle not a warrior type, but he's humble and gentle. And, but he's coming for what? For justice through to victory. Now, everything in our mind thinks of victory or justice being achieved through a war, isn't it? Let's have a fight. Let's oppress the oppressor. Let's sort them out. Let's just take them out right now. But somehow the Messiah, through being quiet and gentle and humble, will bring victory and restore true justice. It says, in his teachings, the islands will put their hope. And islands just is a way of saying to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth, people will put their hope in him. And we see that in, the, in Matthew's bit where NIV put the nations We also see that he says in his teachings, but Matthew wrote in his name. And that's because in the Greek version of Isaiah, it says name. They use it interchangeably. And when we think about justice, we often just think about courts, don't we? What is right and what is wrong? But the word mishpah is more than that. 
It's about the right order of things, the way that things are meant to work. It's about, right back to creation, how God set up the entire cosmos, restoring it to his original plan. So the scope of the servant is huge. It's way beyond just restoring the kind of wealth and land to Israel. This is about putting the whole cosmos right. And we read on, remember, our people would have known all of Isaiah. What does it say next? God is speaking to his servant and he says, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. A new covenant here is promised. Something different is coming. A covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. It's a prophecy that it's going to include more people. What will he do? Well, it says exactly what Jesus says he has come to do. Open the eyes of the blind, free the captives, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And so next we see an example of that happening, the releasing from the dungeon or darkness. So let's read the next bit. So verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges." But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can, you en- how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up a strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now, this section is about demon-possessed. And when we think about that, we have all sorts of weird horror film movies with people's heads rotating and vomiting and axing people to death. So we've got a whole load of stuff going on from our culture. But the word, I'm not even going to attempt to say it, refers more to one who's afflicted or affected by a demonic or evil powers. And that can feel really strange to us because we certainly don't want to go around believing that everyone who's blind or mute or has a physical or mental condition is needing deliverance. That is dangerous. And we don't see Jesus doing that. But there is a sense that the world, though once influenced by good, is now not quite right. There is something that needs restoring There is a justice in its broadest sense that needs to happen. And if you ask the question of people, do you believe evil exists? 
What do you think? Most people will absolutely nod to you and say, yeah, I see evil all around me. I see evil happening. Do you think evil is a power or a force? Mm, we might get different, um, different answers. But whatever's going on here, Jesus links it with demonic affliction. And Jesus enables the man to speak. And this is when the crowd says, is this proof that Jesus is the Messiah? Is he the son of God? The son, oh, sorry, the son of David. And the Pharisees again come straight back with, interesting, <laughs> so I, um, the, ooh, where are we? Yes, the Pharisees come straight back and say, no, this is not good. This is something to do with a demonic power. In fact, the prince of demons. Okay, so here's the word they use. Now, it's a weird word, and um, it's come to mean the lord or prince of demons. But the suggestions about it go a bit like this, that potentially this is the Hebrew people doing a bit of a play on words. That at one point, it was the first bit... Baalzebub. Oh, I've got it. You could look up there if you like. <laughs> You'll just have to listen. Okay. Oh, I see. There's more problems than I thought. Okay. So if you think of Baal, now that'll be familiar, won't it, from the Canaanites. And so they were a bit sneaky. And this is a theory I will put. But they changed it to Baal, which sounds like Lord of Flies or Lord of Filth. And we can use a more rude word there if we like. So it's actually an insult against their God and had come to kind of be associated with this, the kind of prince of demons. So they're saying Jesus is in league with a foreign God or power or evil force. He's suggesting, they are suggesting, that it's a bit like, you know, when Moses uh, was showing those powerful demonstrations of the Spirit, but the magicians copied it. They're sort of hinting at that. Or when they went in, uh, in Deuteronomy, it talks about stay away from evil forces and things like that. Stay away from witchcraft and stay away from these forces and those powers. But notice, no one is denying that Jesus has the power to do these things. There's no point they go, oh, I don't think that was a real miracle. I think the person really is still blind. No, everybody can see very clearly what's happening. And so Jesus gives these three things. He says, okay, well, if you think that, just look at the ridiculousness of it. Firstly, a kingdom against, divided against itself can't stand. If one person's going in and healing, the other one's afflicting, healing, it, this isn't going to work. So he says that's the first bit. The second one, he says, well, what about your guys? How have you discerned that my actions, ooh, my actions, the lights have come back on for those that are listening, my actions are evil, but your guys, it isn't. I mean, where is your, where's your discernment here? And then he says, but by, if it by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. If people are being released, then the restoration, the justice of God has begun. 
here. This is the evidence in front of you. And then he talks about the strong man and the strong man's house. Now, the interesting thing about the house here is that that Beelzebub, there's also a theory as well that it sounds a little bit like Lord of the house, which is interesting here because Jesus will go on and talk about the house a bit, where you'll find out next week from Jez. So that's all going on. Then let's look at verse 30 to 32. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, lots of people get unstuck on this because you have I committed the unforgivable sin? What is it? How does it work? Well, I just want to reassure you that there is a, firstly, there's a gift of discernment given by the Holy Spirit, isn't there? To discern spirits. That, that is part of the Bible. So it can't mean that. It can't mean I'm going to sit back and just Just pray and think, is this of God? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing that for Jesus either. If you're thinking, hmm, who do I think Jesus is? There's nothing wrong with pausing and saying, God, please show me who he is. But let's look at the context. These guys have decided outright that Jesus is not the Messiah. And no evidence that Jesus provides convinces them. They standing against his teachings, against his actions. They say that he's of the devil, that he's not anything at all to do with Yahweh. Their, their hearts are utterly hard and they fully reject Jesus at this point. They will not accept his yoke. They will not learn from him, and therefore they cannot accept his mercy. They do, will not accept his love demonstrated on the cross, and therefore forgiveness cannot be found in this life or the next. It's a really hard statement. And so even if you question, have I done this, you haven't. So that's just a little sideline. So finally, Jesus invites us along with the crowd, to make up our mind. And he says, well, look at the evidence. Come on, genuinely asking, is Jesus from God? Well, let's look at the evidence. Verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings out good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Look at the fruit. Those in the crowd can discern What is the fruit of those who are accusing Jesus? And what is the fruit of Jesus? Look at what is good and bad. John the Baptist said a very similar thing to the Pharisees when they came for baptism. He says, produce fruit in keeping with with repentance. 
They're both saying to the Pharisees, this is not about rituals. This is not about being holier than thou. This is not about trying to keep the law beyond what it says. This is about reflecting God's image, a heart change, not just an outward change. To be loving, joyful, good, kind, self-control. We see that, don't we, in Paul's writing, more merciful. And Jesus goes on and rebukes the Pharisees in the same way as John the Baptist again, saying, you nest of snakes. John says, you brood of vipers. The words come from the evil stored up in you. And Jesus will go back to this a bit later in... um, Wait a minute, we've got to catch up now. Oh, we've missed all this. Yes, later on in 23, Jesus will come back to them again and talk about being made clean on the inside, not just what you look like on the outside. That's never going to be enough. The heart, the center of our home, our house, our temple... And Jesus, come back, you'll be a bit more on that next week. Needs to be clean. It needs to be restored. It needs to be made soft, our hearts. The Pharisees have hearts that are hard. They are blind, they cannot see. They are deaf, they cannot hear. They cannot understand. And they need God to reveal it to them. They need the humility to accept that they need God. They cannot do it through steely determination, like starting Lent and saying, I will not do that, only to find that we fail. We need God and his grace. And then he closes verse 36. Sounds really harsh, doesn't it? But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. And again, we can panic about that, can't we? For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. And we come back to the yoke. Because without accepting the yoke... Jesus' way for forgiveness, true rest for our souls, true life, free from all that seeks to enslave us. We remain in that place of trying to do the right thing, ultimately condemning ourselves by what we do. Paul puts it like that famous verse, isn't it? What I want to do, I do not do. What I hate to do, I end up doing. And then rhetorically he asks, who will deliver me? And the readers, of course, know the answer. Only one person can deliver him. The Pharisees are not willing to accept Jesus' deliverance, his light yoke. Instead, they choose the way of rules, regulations, and punishments to control behavior. They're entrenched in their conviction of keeping the law and following their guidance will ultimately bring the change that they all want to see in the world. But that way will never bring change. 
the number of rules or restrictions we have can't change our hearts. Without consequences, people do the most horrendous stuff. If we think no one will see, we can do stuff we don't want to do, or we wouldn't like to do, or we might even think is wrong. We, can't, we might choose the way of selfishness or greed, and fear of punishment can curb this, but it will never change the heart. But the good news is that in Jesus, the fear of punishment is removed. So without punishment, how can this help? Jesus, fully human, son of man, fully God, son of God. As our representative before God, lived the life we could not live, a perfect life. And he invites us, come lay your efforts, your struggles, your rules, your self-criticism, your judgmentalism, your deception, your failures, your burdens at the cross. And he invites us to swap our efforts for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit of God, or as Paul says, his love poured into our hearts. And that's the only thing that can bring real change. And the other alternative is to reject Jesus. Let God judge us by what we've done and said. Perhaps we think we are good enough. But Jesus warns that by the standards we use is how God will judge us. A Christian is simply someone who knows that they need Jesus to restore them. They know that they don't get it right. They aren't people who are holy and pious. They are ones who readily admit that they are wrong, that they have hurt people, that they've been judgy, and that they fail. And they're the ones that confess their sins to one another readily because they know they need the mercy of Jesus and his power to change. So we live without fear of punishment or guilt. We don't need to rubbish ourselves, live in the misery of our mess-ups. We live in a place of knowing we're completely loved and forgiven. And as Paul says, nothing will ever separate us from his love again. So let's pray. Jesus, we admit that we need you. We mess up, ignore you, hurt others, damage ourselves. We admit that we often try but fail. And we need your Holy Spirit to change our hearts. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you that you take 
all our burdens, all our failures, and offer us complete forgiveness. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and help us to live for you with restored hearts. Fill us with hope and trust. Amen.